Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Mitchell First. Mr. First has a JD from Columbia Law School and an MA in Jewish History from Yeshiva University. He has published articles on Jewish history, liturgy, and etymology in periodicals such as Biblical Archaeology Review, Journal for Study of the Old Testament, Hakira, and AJS Review. He is presently a columnist for the Jewish Link of New Jersey. He is a practicing attorney in New York City and resides with his wife Sharon in Teaneck, New Jersey. He has authored four books. The first was Jewish History and Conflict, a study of the major discrepancy between rabbinic and conventional chronology. This was the book of the month in the Jewish Book Club in August 1997. In 2015, he authored Esther Unmasked, Solving 11 Mysteries of the Jewish Holiday and Liturgy. In 2018, he authored Roots and Rituals, Insights into Hebrew Holidays and History. His website is www.rootsandrituals.org. We hope you enjoy the show. And without further ado, Mitchell first. Thank you for joining us, Mr. First. Um, Tell us about your scholarship on the subject of the Purim story. Who are Esther and Achashverosh in extra-biblical sources? Okay. So uh, let me say, you know, I worked on this for 20 years, and this was a major article in my book, Esther on Math. Most of of the things that I'll be talking about tonight are in the book Esther on Math, you know, which you can get from um, Amazon or from PolishPress.com. Okay, so... And, you know, basically, I'm going to give you a, a summary here, but, you know, there's really much more in the Astar Math book, which has 11 articles on all the holidays. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about Al-Kashverish and Esther in Secular Sources, which, again, is one of 11 articles in the Esther on Math book. Okay, so basically, the problem with the Megillah is one major problem, which is that the Megillah just, just plunges into Al-Kashverish, does not say Al-Kashverish, then so-and-so, right? It's, it's not contained. Who came before him and who came after him. And this created a problem for 2,000 years for everyone. Okay? Now, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to explain who he is, but just, just trying to understand the whole, the whole background here. So, the Megillah itself doesn't say who he was before or after. In the book of Ezra, in the fourth chapter, there is a context. But the problem is that the, the chapter is written in an unclear way, so it confused people. So, no one, so we're, I'm going to explain, we're going to solve that problem in a few minutes. But basically, that, you know, that is potentially the, the clue, but because this chapter was written in an unclear way, you know, it just confused everyone. Okay, but what is clear? What is clear is that there was a King Koresh, and he allowed the Jews to go back, and around 20 years later, you know, just, just around 20 years later, the temple was built in the reign of Daryavesh. So those, so this is like basic principles you have to, you know, understand in order to absorb what I say afterwards. That first is a Koresh, who allowed the Jews to go back, and then around 20 years later, in the reign of Deyavesh, the temple was rebuilt. So now, the Gemara, Seder Olam and the Gemara, they put Ahasuerus between Koresh and Deyavesh. Okay, so you should always remember this, you know, in according to the official rabbinic chronology, C-A-D, Koresh, Ahasuerus, Deyavesh. Okay, you know, if you ask a person with traditional background, they're all going to, they can say Koresh, Ahasuerus, Deyavesh. But you're going to see in a few minutes that really, this is not Correct, and, and Ahasuerus exists, but he's the one after Jayavish. Okay, so this little trivial difference, but it has it has major consequences because it means that the temple was up. 
And you know, the rabbis in Gush all understand this. It's not just me saying this. Like the dot Rekha understands this, and all the rabbis in Gush understand this today. Okay, but that, that's where I'm heading here. Okay. So, so, so basically, this is the problem. That McGill itself doesn't give enough clues. Now, but, and for 2,000 years, we only knew the names of the Persian kings from the Greek historians. Okay? But in like the 19th century, in the 19th century, the, um, scholars were able to figure out the ancient Persian writing in the ancient Persian palaces. Okay? And then all of a sudden, the, the, the original Persian names came to light. And they found out that this thing that the Greeks were calling Xerxes, or Xerxes, in English we write that X-E-R-X-E-S, this king, his name in Persian was Pasiarsha. And, and then they found, like, like around the, um, 1900, they found this name written in Egypt, an Aramaic inscription from, from, um, from Egypt, Chetchen Yudreshin, or Chetchen Alfreshin. So basically, Xerxes was not this king's name. His real Persian name was Hashyarsha. And, you know, it, it, obviously this is the same name as Ahasuerus, just the Gil has an Aleph in the front. Okay, so, and, and the reason the name got botched was because the Greek doesn't even have a shin. So if they don't have a shin, by definition, they're going to botch the name. Okay? Now, again, I'll explain this all more in, in the Esther and Math book, but this is, these are the basic principles here. Okay. But once you realize that Ahasuerus Xerxes, so now we know all about Xerxes because Herodotus wrote a major book on the ancient Persian kings, and a third of his book is about Xerxes. So Xerxes is, is the son of, of the Darius who built the temple, so again, he, and he reigned 486 to 465 BCE, and the temple was already in existence, and it's having been built in the reign of his father Darius. But the other thing you need to know about Xerxes is that he was involved in a war with the Greeks. And um, he was out of the country for you know, year five and six. So this helped explain the Megillah. There's a gap in the Megillah from year three to seven. Why did it take him so long to find a new queen? So this partially explains uh, you know, why that took so long. The other important thing to know is that, you know, in the chapter two of the Megillah, it talks about um, someone who was, who was exiled in the reign of Yehania. And we were all, we were all kind of taught that it's Mordechai. But if that doesn't work, that means that Mordechai would be too old, because Yehania was at 597. But it's very simple, you just have to read that verse as the, that Kish was the one who was exiled, you know. Mordechai ben Yarm and Shimi ben Kish, so instead of reading it as Mordechai was exiled, Kish was the one who was exiled in 597, and then all, all the dates worked out. Okay, um, you, now before, you want to ask me anything based on, uh, based on anything I said so far? I'm going to go, we're going to do the fourth chapter of Ezra now. Uh, so, but everything I said so far is clear enough, right? So far, so good. So far, so okay. good. So, you know, usually I give this year with, you know, with, with handouts and everything, but just basically what we're going to do now, we're going to, the fourth, we're going to just read a few verses in the fourth chapter of Ezra. And, you know, when, when it's all over, you could go by yourself and look it up, but you have to look at the right edition. You can only use dot maker, okay? If you use traditional, traditional editions, the, the chronology is messed up. So you got to use the dot maker when you, when you read this, okay? So in the fourth chapter of Ezra, the context is the Jews have come back, Torah lets them uh, start rebuilding, but they start running into problems. So in verse 5, in chapter chapter 4, verse 5, it talks about the, the Samaritans, and they're complaining in the reigns of Koresh, Ba'ad, Daryavich. Okay, now, see, Ba'ad teaches you that someone's in between. Like, if, if Koresh and Daryavich were adjacent, then it would just say Koresh, Daryavich, but it says Koresh, Ba'ad, that teaches you that someone's in between. Now, the next verse has Ahasuerus, so, so, Chazal, meaning like the Gwaran and the Seirolam, 
they put Achasuerus in between Koresh and Dayavesh because he's the next verse, and they and they understood that someone was in between Koresh and Dayavesh. But now that we understand that Achasuerus is Xerxes, now we have we can look at these verses anew. Koresh ba'ad Dayavesh. That's Koresh Kambizis Dayavesh. Right? See, we know Haradas tells us that Kambizis is in between Koresh and Dayavesh. And then the next line is Achasuerus. That's Xerxes. He's exactly the right place. He's the one after Dayavesh. Then verse 7 talks about a king Artaxasta, and that goes to uh, verse 23. And then verse 24 um, returns to the main narrative. See, what happened here, there's a digression. In, in chapter 4, the author wanted to complain to the reigns of Korach of Adar Yavesh. And then the author said, by the way, there was another complaint in the reign of Ahasuerus. And then there were more complaints in the reign of Artaxasta. But then he goes back to the main narrative of Jayavesh in verse 24. But you see, when there's a digression and there's no parentheses and there's no footnotes, this confused everybody for 2,000 years. So this is the whole thing. You know, the, the evidence was right here, but you had to know how to understand this chapter. And only once they understood linguistically that Rafferty is Xerxes, then they were able to understand, oh, this is a digression. And then they went back to the main narrative. I know it's hard to understand what I'm saying without the text, but, but you know, you, you go, if you go look at the text, you'll understand. You know, there's a digression and there's no parentheses, there's no footnotes, and it confuses everybody. Okay. So now, now I'm going to go to, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, Xerxes' wife. I'm going to try to identify Esther. Okay. Now. Okay. Herodotus writes about uh, Xerxes' uh, wife, his main wife, and he, he tells them her name, Amestris. You know, A-M-E-S-T-R-I-S, that's how they would write it in English, but the Greek is basically the same thing, Amestris, okay? So now, he, he only mentions her three three different passages, all right? Now, one of them is just a weird thing she did before she died. Another thing is a cruel thing she did. But today, you see, today everybody knows not to believe the cruel thing. See, the Greeks and the Persians were enemies. Herodotus is a Greek, and he's telling stories about the Persians. So, fundamentally, he's writing about his enemies, but it's even more than that. When he's writing about the women in the Persian uh, Empire, the stories are always outlandish, okay? So, you know, he writes crazy stories about the Cambyses' wife, Darius' wife. So, today, the scholars know, even though Herodotus tells a bad story about Messias, you don't have to believe it. This is fiction. Not history, okay? Okay. So basically, what does Herodotus say? But what does Herodotus say? He says that a message was the daughter of a military commander named Otani. All right? So this is, Herodotus is very clear. This is the main wife that, Xerxes' main wife, a message, and she was the daughter of a military commander named Otani. Now, first let's talk about the name a okay? See, we don't have a Persian source for her name, but we can, we can work backwards from from Herodotus, if he calls someone a mistress, that we can deduce that her Persian name was, was MS, had the consonant MSTR. So how, how can we do that? See, why was there an ES at the end of Xerxes? Because in Greek, they have, when they take a foreign name to their language, they have to add these suffixes like ES or IS. Sometimes they add ON, like slow level and Solomon. But basically, you know, in order to fit the name into their language, they have to put these Greek N's in. So, that I have to, at the end of a master's, that's just a Greek ending, okay? So basically, all you have to do is look at the consonants. So the consonants, M-S-T-R. 
So, so you know, what are the concepts of the name ester? STR. So we have STR and MSTR. So basically, you know, is this a match or is it not a match? I mean, it's a, it's a trick question, but it's not an exact match. But basically, it's an overwhelming match mathematically to have three constants, um, you know, three constants the same in a row and you know, coming out the same. Okay, so ester and MSTR, that, that's essentially a match. Probably her name had, had an M at the, at the beginning and it just didn't get picked up, in, you know, in the Hebrew. So I, w I wouldn't worry too much about that, okay? So, basically, there's one little stira. One little stira is that he gives the name of her father as Otanis, a military commander. Now, the Megillot says the name Abihail as, as, as the name of Esther's father. So, this is a contradiction, but, you know, Herodotus has 50,000 details. No one ever believed everything he said. You know, if 40% of what he said would be correct, that would be a tremendous victory. So, like it, it's so nobody ever said about it. Everything he said is correct, I and mean, that's like would be a ridiculous, ridiculous proposition. Okay. Also, he didn't even he's writing thirty years later. He didn't he never went to Persia. He didn't examine records. He's just he's just a rumor reporter. That's all he is. So okay, so he got it wrong. It's a big deal. Now the other you thing, very interesting also that that the Abihail even means military commander. Uh, and just one other uh, just interesting idea is that in the Megillah itself, Esther is given a different name. She has called Hadassah. So we see from Megillah, not the Midrash, in the Megillah itself, she's got two names. She's called Esther and she's called Hadassah. So, so perhaps this per this person, Otanis, or actually, you know, the Persian name might have been Otan. Maybe he had a, he had a Persian name that was similar to, to uh, maybe he had a Jewish name that was similar to Abihail. So, again, Herodotus, there's a contradiction here, but it's not. This is not a real. It's not a winning contest. Okay, I wouldn't. I wouldn't lose one. One night's sleep over this. Okay, because Herodotus, you know, he's just writing on rumors, and uh, no one ever said you have to believe anything. No one ever said you have to believe, you know, fifty percent of what he said. So it's not something that really worry about. Wait. Okay. So, the, so the information that he's giving is not. It's it's not firsthand. It's 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 coming down the grapevine. Right, he's writing 30 years later. He he never even went to Persia. He never went to Persia. He didn't examine birth certificates. It's all well, he's, he's collecting information. And then, and then, okay, I understand. Collect he says it. He says, I'm just reporting rumors. So, you know, so it, it, no oh, one, oh, okay. it, yeah. it's not a serious, it's not a winning cash. It's a nothing, okay? All right. Now, uh, but things like this. See, the dot record information, you know, they, John Merrick and Hamish McGillow, they think Amestris was the main queen and Esther was on a, a, a lower level. See, most people who write about this, they don't realize they could chop off the IS. You know, in other words, when Herodotus writes about Amestris, what you have to, you have to know the trick. The trick is the IS just agree conditions. Just get rid of it. But if you don't realize that, then you think the names don't match. So, so the Hamish McGillow, the intro in the, in the Dot Merrick there, he says, well, um, you know, Amestris was the main queen, but Esther, you know, Esther was, was a little bit of lower level. But it's interesting that the Dot and Mikra Detreus are, volume two, appendix, page three, he's willing to suggest that Esther equals Amestris without discussing. So, you know, it's it, like, uh, so that's the basic situation. Esther is Amestris, don't worry about the cool, 99% Esther is Amestris, don't worry about the cool story that she did. And the kasha that Herodotus, uh, the kasha based on the name of the father, it's, it's not, it's not a serious kasha. The fact that Avichail means a soldier is, to me, 
very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Right. Yeah, it's just such a coincidence. It's horrible. Right. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not even relying on that. I mean, also, just I think uh, let me try to say this uh, also. When it says when Esther was chosen, she, she was taken to the palace, and she did not reveal her true ancestry. It says she did right. So it could have, years of rumors could have developed over who she, who she was from. Uh, okay, so that, you know. Yep. Okay. So all right, so that's uh, that's the basic uh, outline of Achshash and Esther's second sources. But again, you know, there is more to say because there's another Greek historian. Named Theseus, and you know he tells a few more bad stories about Amestris, but but Theseus has like no credibility whatsoever. Anyway, so he, like Herodotus, people believe some of what he said. You know, Theseus don't believe anything he said. So even though he tells more bad stories, you know, you don't have to believe it. Okay, so um, I'm basically ready to uh, move on to the next, the other, the next topic. Unless you want to. Very interesting, fascinating stuff. Um, Okay, so we wanted to ask you about your findings in regards to the shortened time span of the Second Temple period that's apparent in Chazal. Right, okay. Okay, okay. so this topic, this was my master's paper at, at Revel. I studied under Dr. Schneider Lyman. And then my master's actually got published as a book. It's called Jewish History and Conflict. Okay, so it's all about this topic. But it's a very expensive book. I don't control. I don't control the pricing. It's very expensive, you know. And uh, all right. And, and by the way, familiar. I'm familiar with the book. I have not. I don't have it, but I'm familiar with the book. I did not realize that was you. Wow. Okay. All right. But also, just realized in that book, it's in 1997. I mentioned the possibility that Esther was a mistress, but I, I I raised it as like a possibility. I didn't, you know. It took me, you know, ten years to get to to write uh, the. You know, my more updated stuff where I took the position that Esther is a mentress, but in the, in the book, I mentioned it as a possibility. Okay. You know, part of, I think part of the, what happened was, I, I, there was a great book that I read by Persia and the Bible by Edwin Yamauchi, and that's where I learned that Herodotus never went to Persia. See, and that was a big insight. Then I realized, you know, it's nothing. It's just for a rumor reporter. Hearsay. Okay. Okay. All right. So, all right. So, my master's under Dr. Lawman was then, then became this Jewish History and Conflict book, which was then actually, in 1997, there was something called the Jewish Book Club, and this was the Book of the Month in the Jewish Book Club in uh, August 1997. Okay. Anyway, before we get to the Second Temple period, I just want to mention one thing that people don't realize, and that is regarding Bayat Rishon, the official Chazal number is 410, whereas in secular history, it's 380, like, like 966 to 586. So there we have another contradiction. The Arab Hazal have an ex, have 30 years to more. I don't know if you're aware of this. Most people are not aware of this, okay? But there, the right regional number for Hazal is 30 years too big. And the 410 number itself is kind of weird because that's not in Tanakh. You add up all the kings, you get like 427 and a half. That's a separate issue. How to come 427 and a half became 410. But, okay, but again, you know, okay. So, leaving aside that 410 versus 380, okay, that, you know, that, that would not deserve a book. I mean, short book, but not a, not a big book like mine. Okay. So, basically, the Chazal's chronology, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm trying to explain the, the count from creation today, and this is, this is really what, where it all comes from. So, the Tana Rabbi in the second century, he was the author or the final editor of Seder Olam Rabbah. And what he was trying to do, he was 
trying to go from Adam to his time, Adam from Adam to the second Korban, right? You know, he's trying to go from Adam to Korban by Cheney. He's trying to give the dates, the totals, but he's trying to do it based on Tanakh. But what's the problem? The problem is that Tanakh doesn't go till Korban by Cheney. Tanakh ends in the middle of the Persian period. So you have a Greek period, you have a Hasmonean period, you have the Roman period. You can't you don't have enough data from Tanakh to do what he wants to do. But he thought of a way to solve his problem. He utilized a prediction in Daniel. And then he picked the endpoints of that prediction and he made one of the endpoints be Corbin by Cheney. So Daniel chapter 9, there's a 490 year prediction. And Rabbi Yossi and Tedro Omaba, you know, and he says this, he cites this verse. He says, oh, the 490 years run from Corbin by Rishon to Corbin by Cheney. Now, the prediction, the endpoints of the prediction are unclear. Okay, so, you know, he had some liberties here in, in terms of how he was defining uh, the endpoints. But, he, you know, but obviously he wanted to go to 70, so he made that as one of the endpoints. Okay. Well, this is a, you know, the secular world, they, they have a big problem. No one really understands what the endpoints are of, of this prediction, but at least State Rome does take this position. So once they took this position that, that 490, 490 years, from Korban by from Korban by Rishon to Korban by Cheney, and since they knew that the verses talk about seventy years for the exile period, so they're left with four hundred twenty years to buy Cheney. So that's where it all comes from. In other words, Rav Yossi is following a prediction in Daniel, and from there he's deriving, you know, these numbers seventy and four twenty. But now, you see, see. Well, well, but everybody knew at the time of the Harbin fire Cheney, there was, they were counting a minion star, it's a lucid era. And everybody knew what year it was on that count. That started like 312 BC, you see 11 BC. So basically, the Harbin by Cheney was like year 380 um, on the Seleucid era, okay? So, see, what's the, what, he, he only left himself 420 years for by Cheney. So basically, he only had 40 years left for the Persian period. So this, this is what the, the whole, this is what caused the whole problem. He, he follows his predictions on the L, he picks certain endpoints, and because, you know, the, the, uh, the latter parts of the Second Temple period were known, and he's forced to put only 40 years, he only had 40 years left for the Persian period. Now, I see that, and, Okay, now also the, those Persian kings, there's only like, like four Persian kings in, in uh, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what Sadron does, he does something very weird. He turns those four into three. Like there's a verse 614, and there's a verse that says, and Sadron decides that Daryavesh and Artafshasta are the same person. Now everybody knows this is difficult, and you know, many were shown disagree with it, but, but the point is that Rabbi Yossi must have known that his chronology was not might not have been exactly right because he's forcing him to equate a Daryavesh and Arkham Shasta, you know, in verse 614 where it says Shasta. But I don't think he really knew how much he left out. Okay, so basically that's, that's what's going on here that he followed a prediction of Daniel and he boxed himself in and he only had 40 years left for the first period. But I don't, but I don't think he really knew that he was really leaving out, you know, many Persian kings in many years. Um, you know, for example, like, like the period from Cyrus to uh to the last Darius, Cyrus to Darius the third, is two hundred seven years. 
where you know in Saint Rome they make they give that like like uh, fifty two years, and you know there were really ten Persian kings, ten major Persian kings, where Saint Rome uh, kind of takes the working working Tanakh and turns them into three. So this was the topic of my book, you know, like how come you have these two chronologies? But you know, again, it's not like Saint Rome made an arithmetic mistake. It's not like he's relying on unreliable sources. No, he decides to get his chronology by following a prediction um, in the book of Daniel. You know, in, in my book, now I, I didn't have to really solve this problem because other people, but people had, had already figured out this is what's going on. But basically, you know, what I did in my book was I, I, I summarized a hundred different people and I explained, you know, 95% of, 95 people are writing wrong ideas and only these five people, you know, are, are writing the correct ideas. But I, you know, I explain why everybody's wrong and the only people whose ideas are, make sense are the ones who was saying that he, uh, Rabbi Yossi is following the 290 of pr- prediction in Daniel. Um, now, let me just, get, now I have to explain a few more things here. You know, the St. Rome chronology is followed in the Talmud, and the Archibald follows it. So, what this means is that, like, all the BCE dates in all the Archibald books that are prior to Alexander in 332 BC, all the Archibald dates are wrong. Any, any Archibald date before Alexander, before 332, is going to be wrong. And, you know, when you have children, you know, eventually when they get to seventh grade, you know, they're going to start asking these questions. Well, how come, you know, in one book it says the book of Nancy destroyed the temple in 586, and how come the article book, you know, gives, gives 420, right? How come, you know, the second book says Gary, Gary built the temple in 516, and how come, you know, how come the article book, you know, says uh, 350? Okay. What were your findings regarding certain earlier texts that have the letter pay before the ayin? Okay, so you know I worked on this for many many years, really twenty years, and uh, it ended up actually. So there's a long article in the Esther and Math book, you know, very long subtle article. But before that, I even had an article in Biblical Archaeology Review which has pictures. Okay, so it's in the it's in the July 2012 issue. My book doesn't have pictures, so this article in Biblical, this Biblical Archaeology Review is way too short, but it has wonderful pictures. Okay, so after you buy that strong map, then you, you know, you're going to dig out this, uh, this, that journal. Okay. Anyway. So, the, uh, yeah, the starting point in here is the Book of Echa. The Book of Echa has five chapters, right? The four of them are acrostics. So, all right, so the first four chapters of Echa are acrostics, but the weird thing is that in chapters 2, 3, and 4, the pay verse is before the iron verse. And chapter 1 is in the regular order. So this really raises two issues, right? Why do you have a pay before the iron? And how come you don't even have consistency in the same book, right? I mean, it's, you know, I couldn't sleep nights. This problem. Two problems, right? And then, there's one other weird thing. The, the Asia's Kyle is, you know, we have Greek versions of Nach. In uh, Mishle chapter 31, which is Asia's Chayel, that's an acrostic. In the Greek, they had the pay verse before the I verse. This is very strange, right? And, you know, these Greek texts, they're like from year 400, which is like 600 years before Hebrew te- or Hebrew texts. So these are very old Greek texts. Why in the world would they have the pay before the I? Okay, so, so this is the way it was. No one knew the answer. You know, Sino wrote in 1946, you know, it's never been explained. But basically, now we can explain it all, and it all has tremendous ramifications for the Book of Tehillim, which is full of a cross. Okay, so that's the goal here. We're just going to start out with the Book of Echa, 
but the end result is you're going to have insights into the book of Tehillim. Okay. So, started like in 1976, they found something in Israel in a, in a place called Izbet Sarta. It's like 1200 BCE, and someone wrote all the letters of the alphabet in order, you know, this is in 1200 BCE. You know, this is, it's, if it started, it's like near Tel Aviv. It's, it's, you know what it re, where it really is? It's, it's in, it's called in the Tanakh, but Evan Ha'ezer, where the, the Israelites fought, fought with the Philistines, and the Philistines captured the Ark. So, you know, it's, it's somewhere in, in that area, um, you know, in e- east of Tel Aviv, and they call it Western Samaria, but even Western Samaria is still, you know, still close to the beach, and the Israel is so narrow there. But anyway, this place is at Sorry, 1200 BC, someone writes all the letters in order, and he has a pay before the eye. So this, you know, was very, really very intriguing. Um, actually, what's also interesting is that he actually is actually uh, left to right. This is like so early that the direction of writing is even different. But okay, but anyway, but but scholars there they know that Isbet Sarta was an Israelite place. So this person writes all letters in order, and he has a pay before the eye. And they found this in 1976. And then every few years they would find another one. Not that they have a hundred of them, but basically, you know, they have like six of them. Where they have the pay before the eye, and some of them they're a triplet, and they're all over Israel. Okay, so basically, anytime anybody writes the Hebrew alphabet in order in the you know in the first temple period or the period of Shokim, they're always writing the pay before the eye. Okay, so what, you know, so so what's going on, right? So now, now comes this, this dramatic moment. Okay, the dramatic moment is. Tehillim 34, Ladavid Bashanoto. So we all say this, you know, every Shavit say it years and years, but we don't pay enough attention. So in the in the pay verse, Nay Hashem Ba God looks at those evil people, he wants to He wants to cut off their memory from the earth. Right? He hates them so much, he wants to cut off their memory. What's the next verse? Saku Bashem Shameya, and he called Sarasam Hitilan. He hates them. In the paper, then in the Saudi verse, he's saving it just like that, no explanation whatsoever. So, you look at the dot mikra, and you realize this verse, they didn't, they didn't even have any of the archaeology that I just mentioned. They realized, based on Acha, that this verse will make much more sense if this was a, if this was a pay and why? Because then, in the pay verse, he hates the Risham, and then the ayin is, with me, I mean, this is like very, very profound. All of a sudden, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, Don Micro, they, they, they didn't even have any archaeology, but they, based on Aether, they, they kind of suggested this shot. But once you accept that this was the real reading in Tilm 34, you have to take the next step, right? Next step is what about all the other acrostics in the book of Eicha, right? So, so basically, the book of Eicha is divided into five books. This is a very old division, okay? And the, the first book is one to forty-one. The fifth book is uh, one hundred seven to one hundred fifty. The acrostics are only in the first book and in the fifth book, okay? So. Making the life a little bit easy for us. They're not spread out throughout the whole book. They're only in the first book, one to forty-one, and in the fifth book. Okay, so basically you have a few acrostics in the first book and a few in the fifth book. So now, once you agree 
that Tehillim 34 only makes sense with the K before the I in it. You know, and you got to figure out what to do with the rest. And and again, all the archaeology, all the archaeology finds from from by we showed it earlier, they all have the K before the I. So eventually, I realized, you know, in Tehillim 119, every letter is repeated eight times. So I realized that I could never suggest that that was once a pay iron and then someone switched eight letters. I would, you know, that would be ridiculous. But that made me realize that I should focus on the first book, the acrostics in the first book, and I realized that that's probably the solution, that the acrostics in the first book are the older ones from Bayat Rishon, from, from either from Dalvin Melop or Bayat Rishon, whatever, whereas the ones in, the ones in the fifth book those are really the later ones. So, so I'm, basically, I'm, I, basically, I figured out that the order probably changed, you know, around, uh, if due to Gaulus bubble. I'll explain more in a, in a few minutes. But that's basically what, what, what's going on here, that there was an original order, and then the, the order changed uh, due to Gaulus bubble. Now, I you know, have to explain a lot more things here. So, uh, so, so, first of all, let me just say, you know, in English, we have LMNOP, right? So that's I and K. That OP, right? But where does that come from? So, even though I told you that in ancient Israel everything had paid for iron, but in, in Ugaritic from 1300 BCE, that's Syria, they had iron pay. So, you see, in this, you know, in this old period of, you know, 1200, 1300 BCE, in, in Syria, Ugaritic, they have iron pay, but in ancient Israel, they have pay iron. So just just realize that, okay, that there were two different orders um, in this in very ancient time. Okay, and, and basically what I'm going to, you know, look, I'll, I'll say it right now. You see, I think what happened was when the Jews went to, go, to Babel, then they picked up the other order. See, the Jews picked up a lot of things in Babel, like the names of the months. Also, the, the shape of the letters changed. You know, let me just say quickly, even though the Gemara said that there was a change in the time of Ezra, it's not that simple. They were really... It was really like a change, you know, when they went to Babylon, and then the next change is really from like the Greek period. So, so it's really like three, three different kinds of writing. You know, the Old Hebrew, and then something like cursive, and then only really in the Greek period did they really have the square script that we have today. So the point is that, you know, I'm saying that I, I think what happened here is that the um, AI and order. Uh, got switched to I and K once the Jews uh, went to Bubble, and again, that's you know a lot of other things changed in that period as well. Okay. Now, what I have to explain is, see, you already did Tillum thirty-four, so now there's another cross in Tillum thirty-seven. Well, so before I forget, but let me I really mention a few things. For me to say it's the fifth book of Tillum is is from early by Cheney. You know, language scholars have kind of figured that out already because. There's someone named Avi Hervitz, he, he studies the language of Tehillim, and he says you can distinguish in early Tehillim and late Tehillim. You know, in the fifth book, that's where they have phrases like Al-Narod Babel, Shiva Theon. So, you know, it's, it's, and, and even, even, um, there's, there, even though the Baba Vatra talks about Davida people earlier, him, there are, in Shir Shirim Rabbah and in Kohelet Rabbah, they mentioned Ezra, one of the ten people. So again, even though everybody thinks about David and ten earlier people, but, in Shir Shem Rabbah and Gohelet uh, Rabbah, they mentioned Ezra as, as one of the ten people. So the idea that you know parts of Tillam are from early Bichani is not, is not so radical. So, radical. Mm. so 
but now let me just go back to uh, uh, the, the acrostics in uh, the beginning. So, so 34 we already did. What did I tell them 37? See, we never talk about 37. It's not as part of the dominant. So, so if if you agree that Tillum 34 was really table for iron, and if you agree that uh, that the table for iron was really the original order, so what happens in Tillum 37? So what's the order in Tillum 37? It's very interesting. You know what the order is? There's no iron verse. Did you know that? There's no iron verse there. I never noticed. And what's more, uh, my friend Sam Board, I pointed this out to me once, he told me, oh, the Samach verse is too long. You know, there's a certain, you know, normal length in, in each, within each chapter. So basically, there, there's some kind of, something went wrong here. And you think it's just coincidence that it happened with letter I? No, it must be. Must be, I mean, not must be, but I mean, I think that it was originally a pay eye, and whoever was copying it was used to iron pay, and that kind of messed them up. Mm. So that's, you know, it's not just coincidence that you have a problem on this letter, okay? All right, so that's Tillum 37. Now, in Tillum, there's another long acrostic, 9 cash 10, is an acrostic that runs through both chapters, okay? Now, it has many letters missing, but basically it's an acrostic which, which does have a few letters missing. And already a hundred years ago, some scholars have kind of suggested this was really once a, a pay iron. So, all right, so scholars had already suggested that, that, that the one in 9-10 was already a pay iron. Um, until in 37, I told you, uh, you know, the text is missed, it's a little bit messed up, so I, I tried to explain the reason why. And then basically, I had to come up with a spara for Tehillim 25. It took me, a, you know, a few years to come up with a spara, but eventually I figured out a spara why Tehillim 25 also could be pay iron. I don't want to go into it now, but you know, you'll, you read the book, you'll, you'll see what I you'll see what I said. Um, but what I do want to say is so okay. So basically, so that's what I decided that you know um, that the, that the, the book, the acrostics in the first book were really from you know early times, whereas the acrostics in the fifth book are from you know from early by chain. Now I want to say something else about Asia's Hyle. We have to go back to Asia's Hyle because I told you the Greek. The Greek manuscripts from 400, year 400, um, they have to pay before the iron. What's going on here? They must have been copying from an old Hebrew, which had to pay. Oh, I forgot to mention, by the way, before I forget that, before I, I forgot to mention something very important. The Dead Sea of Ava chapter 1 had to pay before the iron. See, I started off, I said, I started off the share, I said, hey, we have two problems. I said, two, three, four, I pay before iron. Chapter 1 is the regular order. But then, all of a sudden, when they, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, but the stuff was not really publicized for decades. So when it finally got publicized, you know, which is, you know, years later, so that chapter one had to pay iron also. So we have, we now have, you know, consistent pay iron in, in, the, in the Dead Sea, uh, consistent pay iron in, Asia, in the Echa. But now what about the Asia's file? So, again, the, the, the reason the Greek, the Greek translation has a pay for iron, they must have copied from a Hebrew which had to pay for the iron. Now, the way we say today, we say, we say, um, why does she, we say, uh, one second, Tishaf Yom Macron, right. We say, always my daughter, at the end of days, she, she's, she's happy at the end of days. Why? Because always my daughter, right? What's, what's before that? Before that is something about buying clothing and buying a belt, like, you know, something about the clothing and belts. And then it says, always my daughter, and she's happy at the end of days. Based on you know Ozvardar Lavusha, but once you realize 
this was originally a pei, and then all of a sudden, toward chesed so she has chachma, she has chesed, and then oz v'hadar and rusha kisach yom acharon. So all of a sudden, that yom acharon becomes the culmination to much more uh, profound uh, set of, of statements. So you're suggesting that the right order it, it should actually be flipped. I'm I'm saying that yes, I mean that's what I'm yeah. saying because it flows, it flows, it flows I mean, better. And maybe I'll try that this Friday. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then just, you know, I'm that's not what, making this up. This is the Greek manuscript from 400 from 400 CE has the table for the iron. So it's not these things are not are not just uh, coincidence. So you know, there is a Gemara on this topic. You know, there is a brief Gemara. They only talk about it. You know, they're not aware, they're not aware about the, you know about the Greek manuscripts of of, of Mishle. They they say the Marazim put their pay before the iron. But you know, but that doesn't explain why the first chapter. They doesn't explain uh, it doesn't explain the inconsistency between the first chapter and chapters two, three, and four. And and the Book of Echa really on on the simple level doesn't really have to do with the Marazim. So you you know you can't just read Marazim in, into there. So what's interesting is that this kind of uh, pokes holes in can I drink gem, in gematria? Gematria, I, that's how, right. I said elephant that at the end of my article. Room. This the whole elephant. time, no, that no, elephant no, in the I, room. That's, that's how I ended my article. My that's how I ended my article. That's I mean, I said, okay, you know, I I, I just I solve this problem, I solve this problem, but I will leave the the impact on gematria to somebody else. But I want, <laughs> but I want to tell you, I gave this year in my school once, right, and. Um, it was happened to be it was like a special Shabbos. It was the uh, it was like the OU Women's Division, and it was oh right. She said it was right, we had a guest for Shabbos. She said it's oh it was like you know the seventy seventh year of of the OU Women's Division. So I said all right, so it'll just be pause go right. So you know it's like it it it, it damages some commodities, but it it enables enables new ones. You know? Of course. Um, okay. It's the beauty of gematria is you can really just make it fit for anything. No, okay, all right. But, <laughs> anyway, okay. So, so, all right. Do you have any questions? Uh, do you have any questions on what, what I I did here? Um, no, no questions. It's really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but here, let me just one Can I let, can I can I say one thing here? Just, yeah, please. sure, of course. Let me just hit. Hit. Let me say what what my spar was for Helen twenty five. Maybe you'll, you'll you'll like it. Okay. Because it, it's it's really it took me a long time to figure this out. So you know the whole this whole thing starts with you have to you have to be agreeing with what I did in Psalm 34 about the Rishayim and the Tzaddikim. You know what I mean? But you know, so once you agree with that, right? So that's you know that's why we're trying to take the next step. So Psalm 34 has a pay verse at the end, right? This is very weird. Why does it have this whole acrostic with a pay verse at the end? Right? I mean, I don't I don't know if you think about this, but I don't know what a good answer to that. And then there's really no vover, even though the article kind of the article kind of creates a vover. They take the haverse and chop it into two, and they make like this, you know, as if it's a three-word verse. But really, uh, Tilm 34 has no verse and it has a verse at the end. Okay, and you know why does it have no verse? Again, the vov is a weird letter in Hebrew. You know, like no roots start with vov. I mean. You know, if you look at the monochrome and coordinates, basically there's like almost no entries for above. So something unusual about the letter above. But what's interesting is so so the Hillum twenty five also has no above verse and it has a pay at the end. So it's not just Hillum thirty four 
that has no above verse and a page. And film 25, same thing, no above verse and a pay at the end. You know, today I look at Israel, the cold source stuff. But I kind of realized that, you know, probably if, if you grant the Tilm 34 really was one to pay iron, then probably Tilm 25 was written, you know, in the same community, and that must have been a pay iron too, because you can't, I'm sure there was not like so many different variants. So again, it's so unusual that Tilm 34 has a pay verse, an extra pay verse at the end and no above, and Tilm 25. Uh, you know, same thing, an extra pay verse at the end, and no above. So uh, I think that it, it must have had that pay on it too, even though I, even though I can't prove it. Absolutely fascinating. That was, that was amazing. Great so, stuff. So uh, before we go, um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Right. So, okay. Uh, so, you know, I, I like to understand the ancient world. So that's why I, I keep my AOL address. So M first, A T T Y at AOL.com. Okay. That's me, M first. ATTY at AOL.com. You know, in my day job, I'm a personal injury attorney. I represent people who get involved in accidents, but I'm able, I'm able to have this whole other uh, life on the side, you know, for several decades already. And, you know, I write, this is what I do also, is I write articles every week in the Jewish Link in New Jersey, and uh, now I turn them into books. So, like, I, you know, aside from, I've already mentioned uh, two of my books, right, The Jewish History Conflict and the Esther and Math. But now I write these weekly columns and I have one book, Roots and Rituals, and I have another one, Links to Our Legacy. You know, I take 60 of these short articles and, and I make them into books. And, uh, wow. And it's really, uh, before we go, I just want to say that it's very important what you do because you're really trying to get to the bottom of a lot of the issues that people usually neglect or push off for somebody else to, to deal with. So, and it's not an easy thing to do because obviously, they are, by definition, controversial These are topics. Difficult, difficult, and difficult, questions. and people are very, uh, you know, sensitive about certain things. But the truth of the matter is, you're trying your best to come up with solutions, and solutions know. that that make sense. Right. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you very much. Great job. I really enjoy your articles, and I highly suggest your books to all our audience. Thank you very okay. much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys